When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. The Premier League gave us some absolute bangers and for one referee, a pretty big clangor. Man City versus Spurs couldn't have been much better and Pep couldn't be drawn into giving a quote like Arteta. Liverpool also delivered a wild game with Trent Endo and McAllister all getting it on frame. Chelsea turned it on against Brighton and Burnley got a win that made the relegation race tighten. Elsewhere, Harry Kane was dealt an unfortunate blow He was stopped from scoring by way too much snow. Christian Pulisic scored a goal that was nothing short of majestic. And we finally set the final in the league that's domestic. The crew and LAFC have their MLS Cup final places sealed. So who will Giorgio Chiellini horse collar at lower.com field? Mm. (laughs) My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to discuss the weekend's action and much, much more, it's Laughing's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. I I was almost through, Ryan. Your intros are always clever. I try to reserve my actual laugh-out-loud moments for moments that truly are exemplary. And that one was. It was just sitting there for you, Ryan. You took it. You ran down the field. You scored a touchdown. Well played. (laughs) Thank you very much, Joe. I do do resent having to name the sponsor's name in the title of the stadium, but Uh, here we are. That's why I Got to do what you got to do for the rhyme, Ryan. It's all about the rhyme, and you pursued it, and that was the right call. Slave to the rhyme, Joe. What can I say? Uh, Also joining us today, Mr. Graham Rutherford. Graham, are you a slave to the rhyme? Oh, always. Of course. Who isn't? Is anyone not a slave to the rhyme? I know you are, Ryan. Not me. I mean, yeah, definitely me. Yeah, yeah. Very good. How are you? All right. Yeah. Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you. Had a great weekend. Graham lots, watched lots of soccer. Lots to talk about on this weekend review. No Taylor Rockwell with us on this uh, mm. review, by the way, today. He's working in, welcoming a new Rockwell into the world. We are wishing the Rocking Wells all the best at this point. Um, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to see bonus content of the uh, footage from the delivery room. No, just kidding. Just kidding. We're not going to put that on there. <laughs> but we will have bonus episodes on there. There is bonus video. Both of uh, my boys, Joe and Graham have been very busy with bonus video content on the Patreon recently. Uh, Graham doing pie stuff and going to small Scottish stadiums. And Joe tinkering the ivories. Look at you, Joe. Yeah, I know. We, we finally got a piano recently. It's, it's been a while since we've actually had a piano. And so we got one. And I was like, well, the people need content. And what is my only talent outside of talking about soccer? It's playing the piano. Um, so, yeah, you can hear me play some piano over on the Patreon. Don't don't sell yourself yourself short, Joe. You're also very talented at finding uh, birthday um, discounts at mm. fast food outlets around Arizona. That is, <laughs> Thank you, that is also You're a talent right. of yours. You're right. I shouldn't put myself down so much. That is an elite skill as well. That was a very good video that Joe put out, uh, finding every free thing he could get coming to him on his birthday. Uh, I tried the same thing, but I did all the downloads and got all the apps and then just didn't go get all the stuff. I forgot weak. the last because step. That's a weak mentality, Ryan. That's that the is difference. a lazy, weak mentality. Yep. Yep. Hate to say it, but it's true. <laughs> uh, learn more about that weak t- mentality and much more at patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for our bonus content and also access to our Discord. All the cool kids are hanging out there, plus us. I'm not including us in the cool kids bracket. Sorry, Joe. Sorry, I know nah, you're, fine. you are cool. Anyway, uh, lots of games to get to, as I mentioned. A Premier League goal fest on Sunday. But why don't we start off, Mr. Joseph Lowry, with the USWNT, who took on China. Double header coming up. Another game on Tuesday, as we record, I believe, against China as well. I will, no- I will never not pronounce it that way, Joe. Thank yeah, you. I, I, I was, never ju- not laugh I was literally <laughs> just thinking that. Your, your commitment to that quote about the Dutch and the way you pronounce China are like the two <laughs> things that I am most confident on whenever we talk about either the Dutch or anything related to China on this show. The U.S. topped China 3-0. This was in uh, in Fort Lauderdale on Saturday. The, the real reason that this game is important is because it was Emma Hayes' first game sort of in charge, right? So she flew over across the Atlantic to meet the players. She met some of the staff and then flew back. She was not in attendance, as far as I know, for this game in Florida. 
But you could see some of the changes that had been made through her discussions with interim manager Twyla Kilgore and with the players. The tactical approach from the U.S. was not only different than what any of the four of us saw at the World Cup this past summer, but different than basically anything we've ever seen from the U.S. under Vlatko Andonovsky. So Vlatko gets fired or leaves the team after the World Cup. And Hayes eventually is hired, and she's in this weird interim lull right now, but is clearly working with the team. She helped pick the roster. She clearly played a part in some of the tactical approach. And we saw some real change for a U.S. team that needed change, both on the personnel side with the initial squad and with who we saw on the field in this game. Two players, Olivia Moultrie and Jenna Nyswang, are getting first caps in this match against China. And then also on the tactical side with what was a pretty standard 4-4-2 in defense, mix of aggressive pressure and some more mid-block stuff. And then in possession, they switched to a 3-4-3, which is a shape that we saw Chelsea, and we do see Chelsea over the WSL use quite a bit. But we saw Sophia Smith as the number nine. We saw Emily Fox moving from left back in defense to center back, left-sided center back in possession. We saw a double pivot in midfield and the two double tens in, in the attack and the half spaces. So lots of those really noticeable changes from the U.S., which I think marks the beginning of what is a new era for this team ahead of the Olympics and beyond. So Emma Hayes not officially attending in any capacity, but like kind of her spectre haunting the game, if that makes yes. sense. Yes, yeah. 1,000%. We were, we were talking before we okay. started, maybe there's a cardboard kickout somewhere, COVID style, um, where there's, you know, Emma <laughs> Hayes in the stands. There were plenty of empty seats in Fort Lauderdale. So maybe, maybe there were some cardboard cutouts in there somewhere, but... You can see the imprints all over this game. Some actual, like, nice sequences of possession, right? Under Vlatko and Graham, we, we saw this all throughout the World Cup, right? It's the U.S. looking super aimless on the ball. You know, they have the ball, but players don't really seem to know where to position themselves and, and certainly didn't know or have a good grasp of where their teammates were in any given instance. In, the, in, in this game for the U.S., granted against a, a very mediocre team in China that the U.S. beat very easily, but in this game, there was more fluidity. There was more purpose in how the U.S. passed the ball, Players actually seem to know where to be and where their teammates should be. Some good runs. The first goal comes from a, a great ball from Naomi Gurma in behind Trinity Rodman. Rodman plays it across to Sophia Smith, number nine, who is the best number nine in the pool right now. And she finishes it off with a striker's finish. There was this very observable improvement. And it's just one game, right? But there was this observable improvement with how the U.S. seemed to position themselves and approach the game when they had the ball. And that is the biggest thing that I wanted to see in this new era. And again, Game one, M. Hayes not even in the building. Like every everything is still very, very new. And there's lots of improvement that still needs to be done. But those things were positives in a game that really I don't think anyone had a good idea of what to expect. Joe, I didn't I didn't catch any of um this match, but I'm just looking at the some of the like the heat maps and the and, and the touch maps and just the general tactical setup. Um, is this quite a narrow team? Because you said it's like a it was dual tens. Who I presume yeah. is Rodman, one of those tens. No, and then no. So it was here. Rose I'll run Lavelle? through the setup. I'll run through the setup really quickly. So it was Rodman out on the left wing in possession. Right. We'll talk about Man City in like two seconds. Rodman was doing what Jeremy Doku did in that game, where he's hugging the touchline. It, it was like a three-two-five, three-four-three in possession. So it was Casey Kruger on the right side holding width and Rodman on the left side holding width in the first half before subs happened and all that stuff. And then it was Savannah DeMello and Rose Lavelle inside as dual tens with Haran and Sana behind them and then Sophia Smith as the number nine. So that was the setup, Graham. Right, okay. That that um, allays some of my fears because looking at this, I'm thinking this is the narrowest team that I've ever seen <laughs> a, 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 a team play. But uh, yeah, that, that makes a bit more sense. Yeah, good stuff. All right, uh, plenty more to come from the USWNT. Trending positively, Joe. We like to hear that very much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now. I didn't want to take a quick break, but Emma Hayes is actually standing behind me. She's not in charge of the podcast. She's just here sort of overseeing <laughs> it at this point. So um, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk Premier League. Back shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Graham, Premier League was drunk on Sunday. Um, it was. The, the results were 2-2, 3-2, 4-3, 1-1, and 3-3. 24 goals, count them, 24 goals in five games there. We've had some modern classic games lately. The, the City-Chelsea game, the 4-4, that Tottenham chaos game against Chelsea, the 4-1 yep. result. Uh, a Liverpool game we're going to talk about shortly as well for 4-3 over Fulham. And this one, Man city Spurs, we are being spoiled by the Barclays lately, are we not? We are. It's peak Barclays right now. I think Sunday set the record for the most Premier League goals ever scored on on a Sunday. 4.8 goals per game, which isn't bad. So you're right, Ryan. We're going through a period of sensational games every week. And the City-Spurs game, I thought, was right up there. Um, and, and it was largely down to what Tottenham did in this game. Because so often you see opposition teams... They go to the Etihad, they sit deep, they stay compact, and they hope to, to nick it from a set-piece or a counter-attack. And Spurs certainly did play on the counter-attack. Um, I loved I loved the, the, the first goal. I think I've said this on the show before. There is nothing more exhilarating to me than a rapid counter-attack goal, especially against like a, like a Pep Guardiola possession team. Like, oh, yeah, you're fancy passing and all that. Bang! <laughs> Up the other end of the pitch in about five seconds, score a goal. Brilliant stuff from Spurs. So they certainly did play on the, on the counter. Uh, but they also went toe-to-toe with City for periods in terms of their use of the ball, in terms of their pressing. Keep in mind that Spurs are still missing so many key, key players, so this this wasn't a result that drags them back into the title race. I think they're still... Well, obviously, they've technically dropped points here on, on Arsenal at the top of the table, but it did say something about deep, how deeply rooted Postacoglu's approach is within the squad. That their second string... And look, there is still a big drop-off when they're missing players like... Uh, James Madison and, and Van de Ven particularly. Basuma comes back into the team for this game. Richarlison introduced off the bench as well. He's come back a little bit earlier than expected. But nonetheless, they're missing some important players and there is a drop-off. But you can see in the second string that they are still absorbing some ideas and and the principles of Postacoglu's style of play are still there in the way that, that Tottenham are playing these games. Are we, are we calling this a second string at this point? Um, largely, I would still say it was. It, it was. I mean, obviously, it's mixed. You've still got the uh, the, the first choice fullbacks. You've got Son in, in, in attack, but you've got Giovanni Lo Celso as as the James Madison figure. You've got fullbacks as centre backs in this team. <laughs> Eric Dyer still can't force his way. I don't think he was included in the squad actually for for this game, which is a statement on what Ange Postecoglou thinks of him. But yes, I would still say largely. I mean, Brian Hill and Brennan Johnson are the wide players in this team, so I accept right. that there are some first team players mixed in, but it's not their strongest eleven certainly. Fair enough. But Joe, as, as we mentioned, a very good game. 3-3 was the result. I'm not sure I've actually mentioned that at the top of talking about this game, but it was a action pack. We thought City were going to clinch it 3-2, but then, of course, Kulishevsky with the 90th minute equaliser. Um, are we concerned at all about Manchester City, Joe? Not just because of the sort of drop-off and the fact that, you know, they're conceding a lot of goals this season. 
three yeah. more this weekend. But also, I'm worried about Pep. He had no fight when uh, he was clearly denied a goal-scoring <laughs> opportunity or his side was by a dodgy refereeing decision at the end of this Halland's game. had enough for both of them, I think, <laughs> with his reaction. <laughs> I want to ask the group, right? Because we've talked so much about refereeing discussions recently, and I've got one question about it. There will be no follow-ups. I have nothing else on this, and then we'll, we'll talk about the actual <laughs> soccer stuff. It was a blown call, right? Like, that that's all it was. It was the wrong decision not to give the advantage in that play after it looked to me like the referee had already signaled for advantage and then brings the play back. Graham, am I reading the situation correctly? No, it's, it's, it's one of the worst decisions of the season, but I find it easier to accept because VR isn't involved in it. It's just... I'm not entirely sure what it's uh, Simon Hooper, right? Who, by the way, is the yeah. referee in the Spurs-Liverpool goal where... Uh, they didn't allow the, was it Luis Diaz goal that was clearly on sides, that whole far- farce. He was the referee in that game. So that's a little bit awkward. Um, I'm not entirely sure what's going through his mind because he allows the play to continue. And then as soon as the ball is played in behind for Jack Grealish, and look, he's a long way from goal. Maybe someone is going to catch up with him, but on the face of it, it's a, a 1v1 situation. And then he blows the whistle. But I still find that easier to accept than all the nonsense you get with VER and, and the second guessing and the conspiracy theories with that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally disagree with the conclusion you draw there, Graham, but I agree with the rest of it. I, it's, it is a refereeing mistake, and I appreciate you confirming that. It's all so you, bad. Do you, find and, this, uh, you, you find this harder than, like, a, you, find, I, you find this more dispiriting? Not, than not more like or less. VR it's discussion. equal. Like, it's, it's a complete mess of an error, and all the VAR stuff we've been seeing recently certainly seems like it falls into that category as well. It is, it is I'll, imprecise. I'll, I'll say, Joe... Yeah, I agree with you there because at the end of the day, they are all human errors. Whether it's the right. VAR guy, it, but that's doing the point I'm making. Is this is a pure human error? But once you once you introduce VAR, you get tied up in all the process and whether the law is correct or whether the law should be written that way. And that's where my frustration with VAR comes from. Well, but so you, this oh, is just a this is just a pure like <laughs> bad decision. I'm breaking. I'm not angry at you, Graham. I'm angry at me for breaking my own rule. It's it's all process <laughs> stuff, right? Like, there's no question about the law here because there's no handball. Like, there's no gray area. This is like comparing an apple to a green bean, right? This is not the same. They're both food, but they're completely different situations. So there's no there's no reason to like get in and debate. It just really does look like a big mistake. Anyway, I broke my own rule. Back to the actual game. Sorry, Man City, that maybe you didn't get three points out of this one. Don't have a, a lot of sympathy for you, but hey, whatever. In this game, one, one of the reasons why I thought it was so fun, and Graham, you talked about a lot of this. Tottenham play their way, right? And they, they seeded some of the early possession to Man City, Tottenham didn't really have a sustained spell of the ball until the 11th minute of this game. So Man City, despite going down first, were all over this game. And they were the better team throughout the 90-plus minutes of this match. Let's not get it twisted. They were the better team, and I'm not really sure it was all that close. But Tottenham are here to entertain. And they're here to try and play good soccer along the way. And they did both of those things. But uh, Man City in this match had more regains in the, in, in the final third. They won the ball more often in the final third. 12 times than any other Premier League game this season. They were dominating in the press, but Tottenham still play through so often. They still control the ball so often that they're having moments of joy in the attack as well. And so it was really two teams that wanted to open up, that wanted to play. Neither team, I thought, had their best game of the season. Tottenham had some issues. I talked about playing through the press. They were sloppy early on. They had a hard time figuring their way through City's press in the early stages of this game. And I do think they grew into it as time went on. Man City, I don't think this was Bernardo Silva's best game by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think this was Julian Alvarez's best game, even though he does have an assist. I didn't think this was flawless Man City in basically any phase of the match. And Ryan, you mentioned the defensive side. You know, I, th- I think maybe you led me in there before we got off on the refereeing stuff. Right? You mentioned some of the defensive side. City have not been especially sharp in their rest defense. And we saw that on the first goal, right? It's a counterattack off of a corner. City have three defenders kind of outside the top of the box. One of them is Phil Foden, who gets done by Brian Heal, and then Doku's the one tracking back, and he gets wrecked by Hyun Son. And so we're seeing these individual errors. I don't think it's systemic, but I do think we're seeing these errors from City that are leaving the doors open for teams, and that's making these games even more entertaining. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure someone smarter than than I has some sort of theory on what's going on with City right now, and I'm looking forward to to, to reading that article or or watching that video whenever that comes out because it does it does feel like maybe something a bit more collective is going wrong wrong. I just can't put my finger on it right now. But individually, I'm not convinced Josco Gvardiol has had a great start to life as a City player. There are times when he seems quite overwhelmed with having to cover so much space as you have to do in the rest defence, as you called it, Joe, as a City defender. I don't know if Akanji has been up to the standard of last season either. Just some engagement whiffs from him, like in the, in the Leipzig game last, last week in the Champions League, where he gets back into position... 
and then just doesn't engage uh, Los Appenda or the ball yeah. at all and just allows it to, to bypass him. So I think there's, there are some individual things going on there. But 10 goals in four games, that, that, that is quite shocking for Manchester City. And I do wonder if there's something collective going on there. Yeah, I, I wonder the same, Graham. And I, I am curious to watch that same video, read that same article when it comes out. My thought, because I'm, I'm watching these games now very closely from a City defensive perspective, because this is the trend, right? We did that whole episode on the big thing last week about the title race in the Premier League and sort of why each team could or, or maybe won't do it. And the biggest thing outside of a potential Roger injury, and he'll miss the next game after yellow card accumulation, but the biggest thing outside of that that we mentioned is some of their issues, some of their individual moments in defensive transition. And that is really what I believe it is, right? I don't think there are any massive structural flaws in how this team is playing. You think back to that Chelsea game, and that's the 4-4 draw. Just uncharacteristic mistakes from Ruben Diaz, who is still very much in his prime. You think about Manuel Akanji, and we have seen him defend well in space before. That is one of his elite skills. You think about in this game, some of the issues from Man City that, that happen to pop up on a corner, maybe with their structural approach. But really, how many of those things do we think are going to pop up over and over and over again? Now, I don't think many of them are going to be consistent issues. Now, that being said, every point matters in the Premier League right now. City are now three points off the title lead. We'll talk briefly about Arsenal later on. Like the, the margins are not wide, right? Like there isn't a lot of room for error for Man City. And they have made many errors over the last several games. But I, I'm not especially worried about those things persisting. Uh, Graham, are we worried at all about Erling Haaland? Uh, five shots in this game, four off target, a few he could have buried. I wonder whether that frustration he showed at Simon Hooper at the end was partly uh, reflexive of himself. Well, there's one There's one particularly bad miss in this game, isn't, isn't there, where it's mm. cut back to him from, I can't remember who it is, it cuts it back to him from, from the byline, uh, maybe Grealish, and he sticks it wide of the far post. I'm going to sound like Joe here. As long as he's getting into those positions, I'm not too worried about Erling Haaland because he'll he'll find a scoring touch again. Joe is, is showing you, a lot Graham. to the camera. I love you. There we go. <laughs> so That's what go. we like to see. Well, well, we also like to see a nice... Sorry, to, to pause one there. Uh, Ryan, I'll flip it back to you. Are you worried about Erling Haaland? Because it was uncharacteristic, right? Like this guy scores at a ridiculous rate. He is incredibly efficient, both off the ball and on the ball. But are, are you worried about Erling Haaland? Erling Haaland. I am not worried about Erling Haaland in any respect of any All part right. of his life, Joe, at this point. Nice. No. You, know he's frust- you know he's frustrated when he takes the hair out of the, the bun. And he, uh, was it not, did he not score a goal in a game last season where he'd, he'd been in an argument with the, with the referee and then he'd taken the hair out of the bun and then he, then he, then he scored it. Phil. Yeah. Similar vibes here. He just didn't score. He just had an argument with the referee. Is there a, um, the ratio, the amount of time after full whistle when he releases the man bun? Is that, does that, is, uh, is there a, something we can read into the frustration? Like some kind of algorithm. Yeah. yeah. How soon does he become the Atalanta crest after the uh, full-time <laughs> whistle? We will we will uh, have to look into that one. I want to see the video and the article on that, frankly. Um, Pep Guardiola with a nice quote after the game. When both teams want to win, football is a nice game. Hear, hear. Hear, hear, Very nice. He doesn't uh, really believe that. Yeah, I like it. One more um, very important point about this game, Graham. These Tottenham kids, are they the worst oh, in bad. world soccer? Like, I've had some arguments. Why are they on, brown? On, on Why the are they this weird right. brown color? I don't understand. They're light mushroom, I believe. They, is, they uh... are a terrible color. They look particularly bad on the broadcast when you sort of, you know, the the, the regular camera, when you can see all the... It just looks terrible. I, I thought, you know, don't adjust your screens. Yeah, they're, 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 they're not my favorite at all this season. They can They can get in the bin. Yeah, uh, agreed. And maybe they already are after this uh, after this match. The one other thing to go back to very quickly, the Man City discussion about their defensive transition. Also, Tottenham, I'm sorry if it feels like we, we kind of shortchanged you in this game. There was some awesome stuff and some, some beautiful play, and I really enjoy watching this team. I think everybody on earth with two functioning eyes does as well. To, to mm. bring back in one more note on City, though, I, I think it's gone underrated a bit how influential the John Stones loss has been in terms of their defensive transition stuff. That's one thing we've talked about before, but just didn't come up in this conversation. And I want to plant our flag there. Missing John Stones and having a Kanji be in that midfield area, even though that wouldn't directly impact the corner kick that puts City behind the eight ball to start this game, right? Even though that doesn't matter in every moment of every game, I do think when you add all those moments up, you you do miss John Stones, who was legitimately awesome in that defensive midfield role next to Rodri in possession and defensive transition last season. I know we're jumping around a bit here, but I, I want to make sure we do give Spurs the, yeah, the credit please. they deserve because to go to the Etihad, play Manchester City this way, come away with a 3-3 draw is very, very impressive. Um, one one quite beaten Postacoglu and his approach. Watching Sky Sports 
uh, their, their coverage of this game, there are a lot of people within the pundit, punditry class, um, certainly in the UK, who still don't understand why Spurs play the way they do. You'll hear a lot of things during the game of they should be dropping players back to the edge of their box, should be a little bit more compact, you know, dropping off Man City, standing off them. Do they really think Spurs could come to the Etihad and play on the edge of their own box and get a 3-3 draw? I, just, I don't really understand that that logic. I mean, if you look at Manchester United, a team that have compromised and compromised and compromised, and now Eric Ten Hag doesn't seem to know what he is as a coach or what he stands for, I think you contrast that with Spurs, and I would much rather be a Tottenham fan, who, yes, they're, they're now four games without a win, but it's going to come back round for them, especially when players start coming back into into this team. And it's ride it's ride or die with Postecoglou. He's never going to change, and and I love him for that. And I think yes, while there might be some games like the Chelsea game, which was wild to have nine players on the halfway line like he did in that game, I think you get the benefit in matches like this where Spurs can go to the Etihad and go toe to toe with a team like Man City. Yeah, I think that feeds Graham into my thought that. Being a soccer fan, the wins aren't necessarily the most important part. Most teams, most fans don't have winning teams that they support. So it's the friends you make along the way. It's the friends you make along the way. It is, and whatever happens with Postecoglou is these these Spurs fans are getting terrific entertainment every week. And having had Mourinho and other coaches precede him, it's really valuable to be going and watching games every week to know that you're going to see some yeah. entertainment. Because ultimately, we watch this to be entertained, not necessarily to get three points every week. And the Conte Mourinho thing is really important when pundits are saying Spurs should be sitting deep and absorbing. Spurs tried to do that for the last three seasons and it was terrible and nobody wanted to watch them, not least their own fans. So everyone's having fun with Big, Big Ange. Let's just, uh, let's just let it be. Let him do his thing. Let him cook. <laughs> let them cook indeed there was some cooking going on at Anfield this weekend as well Graham Liverpool 4 Fulham 3 Trent Alexander-Arnold with the 88th minute winner after scoring a lovely free kick earlier in the game Fulham were 3-2 up in the 80th minute in this game uh, goodness <laughs> me loads and loads of great goals Jurgen Klopp I've got some good manager quotes today I don't think I ever saw a game with this amount of beautiful goals said Jurgen Klopp he was kind of right it was, uh, it was a very very entertaining game at Anfield Graham yeah, I absolutely was. I thought this match really illustrated where Liverpool are as a team right now, both the good and the bad. So first of all, you mentioned the goals, Ryan, we should start there. All four of the Liverpool goals in, in particular were incredible in their own way. The Alexis McAllister goal is one of the goals of the season, right in top bins, as they say. There was absolutely no stopping that one at all. And the Endo goal was very good. And even the the, the both uh, Alexander Arnold goals. I know the first one is a Leno own goal, but it's one of those unfortunate ones that comes back off the goalkeeper. It was a sensational strike. So some, yes, yeah, some excellent goals. But in general, I thought we saw the threat of the the Liverpool tack as as a whole, um, not just with the goals that they scored, but the number of opportunities they created. I think had Nunes and Salah brought their their shooting boots, Liverpool could have added a couple more to the scoreline. But then defensively, we also saw saw how vulnerable they can they can still be, and how Alexander Arnold's position gives opposition teams something to target. And Anthony Robinson was the player doing that targeting for Fulham. I thought he was Fulham's best player on the pitch. And and between him and Alex Awobi, those combinations down the left were, were a real problem for Liverpool. And I think this was arguably the most Alexander-Arnold match I've ever seen because he scores two stunners, including one from a, a central position on the edge of the box, which sort of had Jude Bellingham vibes about it. But then there was um, such an open channel for Fulham to get down where Alexander-Arnold was missing. Yep. And Robinson was, was, was so quick to get forward and he made good decisions as well when he got into the attacking areas. And he was relentless the whole match with, it, with the power of his running. He never looked under pressure on the ball. So I think this might have been actually the best that I've ever seen Anthony Robinson play. I thought he was very, very impressive, considering the circumstances as well, away to, to, to Liverpool at Anfield. Yeah, that, that first goal that Liverpool conceded in this game, so Fulham's, Fulham's first goal, Harry Wilson scores in the 24th minute. That goal, and really this game as a whole, Graham, made me feel good about the conversation we had on the big thing last week where we, we dug deep into a lot of these top Premier League teams. Liverpool, so incredibly good in the attack, right? The firepower shines through in this game. They're down 2-3, but still have the firepower to go and, and score four to win this game, 4-3, right? So they do so many dangerous things in the attack, and Klopp is right. There were tons of bangers in this game. But that, that first goal for Fulham shows exactly what we talked about on the big thing, which is there are still a lot of ways, probably too many ways, to get at Liverpool in transition, in possession, whatever it is, right? In in twenty twenty. Three, coming into next year as well, Jurgen Klopp has moved Alexander-Arnold inside in possession. And when Liverpool lose the ball, that means he is now really in important defensive spaces. And 
in this moment, he's in between, he's down in the back line, in the middle of the back line, and Liverpool just don't rotate fast enough. It's not on him, this goal, but it is a lack of awareness from the team as a whole to get back and cover in those moments. So Liverpool is still scary good, and they, I think they deserve three points. They were the better team in this game. They are still absolutely a title challenger, right? They're two points behind Arsenal. They're above Man City in the table right now. But those flaws that we mentioned, along with the elite strengths too, those were, Graham, to your point, sort of all present in this match. No team has won more points from losing positions than Liverpool in the Premier League this season. That's 15 points they've won from losing positions. Are they the anti-Man United at this point? Quite possibly. <laughs> Well, more than one way, I think, Liverpool and Manchester United with that, with that rivalry. <laughs> Mentality monsters, right? That's the thing that, that Klopp talks about. That was the yeah. thing that he said in the past that kind of stuck. So that disappeared last season a little bit. Looked quite frail and, and, and vulnerable mentally, but seems to be back this year. It does indeed. Graham, any more to say on this game before we move on to one of the other drunk games in the Premier League on Sunday? Just that it's kind of incredible that a 4-3 game that involved one of the title challengers and they were trailing 3-2 with five minutes to go wasn't top of the bill for the, for this week. It's been uh, that sort of weekend review. It really has. And also, I believe happening simultaneously, uh, if I remember correctly, with this game was the Chelsea 3-2 win over Brighton. Uh, Enzo Fernandez scoring twice this one. Uh, Ch- Chelsea going down to 10 men. Uh, Conor Gallagher getting his marching orders in this one. Chelsea's second win at home in the Premier League this season. They should have more than that at this point shouldn't they uh yep considering how much they've spent what is that like what uh, 150 mil it's probably more than that 200 million per home win this season mm. something along those lines uh this match was always going to be a chaos match given how these two teams have been playing recently brighton have been involved in games with more goals than any other premier league team this season I don't think they've kept a single clean sheet yet in the Premier League this season, which says a lot about how they play under Roberto De Zerbe and, and Chelsea have been scoring for fun recently, but also conceding for fun. So I had over 3.5 goals in my tips for this game, and that one came through. Um, where I'll contradict myself a bit is I thought Chelsea generally had control of this match for large periods. It was just that they lost control of a couple moments. And that'll be frustrating for, for Pochettino. Also frustrating will be another red card for a Chelsea player. That's their third red card in the Premier League this season. Uh, as you referenced, Ryan Connor Gallagher sent off in this match for a, a bad tackle on Billy Gilmore. So I presume that'll be a, what, like 50 match ban? Can't be getting away with uh, that sort yeah, of thing. At least. In, in general, though, I, I thought Chelsea have shown glimpses of progress this season but it feels like there's always a calamity or a poor piece of defending just around the corner and it kind of watching this match back it was on Sky Sports on Sunday evening um, it kind of reminds me of watching our, our Arsenal and Arteta's second season where they were sort of stuck between generations and it felt like a bit of a work in progress and you can see the building blocks but it's, it's all very chaotic at the moment so I do think Chelsea are making progress this season. It is a low, low bar, um, but results like this do show that, kind of similar to Liverpool, their, their, their attack certainly has potential to, to be something serious. Indeed. Something else that's serious. Aston Villa with a 2-2 draw at Bournemouth. They came back twice in that game. Ollie Watkins with a 90th minute equaliser there. Still fourth in the table for Aston Villa. Very, very impressive stuff from then. Elsewhere on Drunk Sunday, West Ham with a 1-1 draw with Crystal Palace. I'm calling it that now. Um, Newcastle with a 1-0 uh, win over Manchester United. Uh, Graham, another bad Man United performance. Paul Scholes calling mm. this team lazy, which I think is actually pretty fair. Yeah, potentially. If Sunday was drunk Sunday, this was sober Saturday for Manchester United because <laughs> this was a 1-0 hammering. Newcastle United were clearing away the better team. Um, I, I thought watching this one, the match just never entered a different phase. It was Newcastle on top from the first minute until the last and Manchester United contributed very, very little. And sometimes you get a sense very early about a team that, and this might be a bit of an intangible point, but they just don't fancy it, that they're not going to embrace the, the fight. And and that was Manchester United here. They didn't handle the Newcastle counter-press well at all. Newcastle had so much more intensity in and out of possession. And at no point did it feel like a minority comeback was, was coming. And, and, and it didn't come. And they just sort of meekly accepted defeat from the moment that Anthony Gordon scored. There was, of course, that moment between Anthony Marshall and Eric Ten Hag, where they're kind of having mm. an argument be- between each other. Some of the body language from Marcus Rashford as well was 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 really bad. So I, I, I think it's ironically uh, often a lazy point to point out that a team is lazy in a performance, if that makes any sense at all. I, I, th- I can kind of see where Paul Scholes is coming from here because it was a really, really bad performance by Manchester United. But this is the sort of thing we've come to expect from them. This, this, is, this is par for the course. 
Does that does that comment on laziness, Graham? Does it alleviate the pressure on Eric Ten Hag in any way? Does it take it off him, or does it in some ways put it on him because they're lazy because of they're not taking instruction from him? Well, I think it does in that the conversation has moved on to this group of players again, um, with players like Harry Maguire and 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 Victor Lindelof and and um, Andy Martial coming back into the starting lineup. By stealth, Ten Hag has kind of ended up with the Oligan or Solskjaer team again, which was heavily criticised for throwing the towel in on the manager. And so people are going, pundits are going back to those old arguments, which I think in some cases are are, are fair because it does kind of seem like there's not the buy-in. You can trust Man- this Manchester United performance with how Spurs played away to Manchester City or even Newcastle in this game under Eddie Howe, how they play this match, um, even when things are going against them in other matches we've seen this season. There's always the buy-in. From the players, I don't think we see that from Manchester United with, with Eric Ten Hag. So I'm not in that dressing room. I don't know if it's an issue with the manager, with the, the group of players, but there's clearly something not working as it should there. To flip around to Newcastle as, as the winners of this game and, and the better team of these two, their goal is excellent. It's a nice ball across from Kieran Trippier after a good pass into the box from Bruno Gamarish. And then it's a nice ball across, like I said, from Trippier over to Anthony Gordon at the back post in the 55th minute. That's the only goal of this game. Mark Carey, who writes for The Athletic, had a great article with this nugget in, sort of looking at around the Premier League with some nice little data pieces and bits in there sprinkled along the way. Uh, Carey wrote that no Premier League team has created more back post chances in open play than Newcastle. So no team has created more goals from those moments at the back post, and no team has created more expected goals either. Newcastle and Eddie Howe has built this into his game model. Newcastle want their wingers especially to be driving into that space off the ball, right? Not not always dribbling on the near side, but having the weak side winger drive off the ball, make the crashing run to the edge, and wait for the ball across. And that's exactly how Newcastle score. I believe they have four goals from similar open play situations this year. Not all with the same type of, of assists or anything along those lines, but those patterns are a key part of how, how mm, easy for me to say, how, how, that's, that's an interesting one coming off the tongue, how he wants his team to finish off plays, those kill patterns in the final third. I didn't realize Newcastle had been quite so dominant at that coming into this game, but you watch and obviously it pays off and there's other moments as well when you can see that drilled into these wide attackers. Yeah. Anthony Gordon has been so impressive this season. Another really impressive performance from him here. I think he's he's often the player, Joe, who's making those, like he did for the yeah. goal here, obviously, the, those late arriving runs to the back post to, to make the most of those opportunities. Another player that I'm going to spotlight from this match, and I've been really impressed with him in the last few games, is Lewis Miley, the teenage central midfielder who came from nowhere. And I'm convinced as a football manager, Regen, who's been brought to, to real life, he has been very good. And I noticed against some of his, some of his off-ball movement is the thing that's most impressive and I noticed against PSG that he was making the off-ball runs to create the space for the shot from the wide forwards coming inside and here he was he was running deep he was doing this thing where he was running deep into the channel whenever Trippier got the ball and he would drag a Manchester City midfielder with him to open up open up the passing lane into Alexander Isak which was a, a, a smart bit of play and it was something that was highlighted by a TNT, a TNT Sports at half time. So he's a very intelligent player. He's very, very strong. He's like over six foot tall for someone who's 18, 17 years old. That, that very, very impressive. He's good in the ball and he's clever. So that's a good mix. I think Newcastle have found a real one there. Yeah, Newcastle continuing to get results despite their injury issues as well. Very impressive stuff from them. Uh, Joe Arsenal with another win, keeping them top with a 2-1 win over Wolves. 2-0 the most dangerous lead though hanging on at the end in some ways but uh, I expected Arsenal to sweep this one it wasn't quite as straightforward as they would have hoped it wasn't quite right with Cunha getting a goal that brings Wolves back in a little bit but Arsenal weren't threatened a ton in this game Wolves had a few chances but Arsenal clearly the better team they jump out to that 2-0 win by the 13th minute Saka gets the first goal in the sixth Odegaard gets the second one in the 13th and I thought Arsenal played genuinely a very good game in this match maybe not their best performance of all time but we're starting to see the attack come in, right? Again, I'm going to keep calling back to that big thing episode because I think it was really, really strong, first of all, and it set the foundation for a lot of these teams at the top of the table. We talked about Arsenal and and what's missing in this team. Well, they have the best defense in the league and they have been the best team on set pieces in the league. Well, that leaves the attack, basically, right? That has been the thing that has not been quite top of the Premier League level at this point, even though they're sitting there. And in this game, I thought the attack was a lot better than it's been in a lot of their other matches. Coming off of a strong performance in the Champions League as well, I think a big reason for that is Gabriel Jesus had played less than 500 Premier League minutes coming into this game, and he is involved in so many moments in the attack for Arsenal in this match against Wolves. And most crucially, he's involved in both goals. The first goal from Saka 
Gabriel Jesus is playing with his back to goal and does a little bit of really nice hold-up work and allows players to move around him and then plays a nice pass. The second goal, he's the one that threads the ball into the box and, and sort of you know really brings some of that play to light facing forward. Gabriel Jesus can bring so much to the game in so many different ways. I thought he was excellent in this match, and frankly, I don't think it's a, it's a surprise that Arsenal put together a very strong attacking performance with their star number nine doing all of the things that he does so well. Yeah, the second Arsenal goal is a complete work of art, and it's the sort of thing we saw lots of last season, where Zinchenko, he bursts down the left, then passes it into Jesus, who'd, who'd peeled away from his marker, plays a 1-2, which got Zinchenko to the byline, who then squares it back to, to Odegaard on the penalty spot, and he sweeps it in um, first time with his left foot. And that is Arsenal at their best, at their attacking best. When we did that big thing episode, Joe, or maybe it was after the Champions League review last week, we got a tweet from someone who pointed out that Arsenal had only played 51 minutes this season with their 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 first choice attacking four of Jesus, Martinelli, Saka and Odegaard. Yeah. And 45 of those minutes were against Longs in the Champions League last week and they scored five goals. Yeah. Which says something about when they get those players on the pitch, they are so much stronger. And Jesus is kind of the kingmaker. Certainly with Odegaard, I think he creates a lot more space for him in, in, in the final third. And we saw that in this match. We did indeed. One other Premier League game to talk about. Very strange goings on at Turf Moor. Burnley won a game uh, and they did so convincingly. A 5-0 win over Sheffield United. I know, I was as surprised as you are. Uh, Burnley off the bottom spot with that result. The joint largest margin of victory in Premier League history for a team starting the day bottom of the table. Uh, 1997, um, Sheffield Wednesday had a 5-0 win against Bolton that took them off the bottom of the table. Fun fact for you, the 90s fans, uh, as I am. Uh, but the big, big news from this game, of course, Luca Cagliosho with a goal, the 4-0 goal in this one. Ding, 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 sound the alarm uh, for, of course, Joe, uh, Italian youth player, Luca Coliosha, hey, who's representing hey now, Italy. Hey now, the, the, the reason why we bring this up is, well, because Burnley winning a game is notable in the first place. Although, I did like how this was just a straight-up championship game masquerading as a Premier League match. That's exactly what this was between Burnley and Sheffield oh. United. It even had the feel, right? You watched it on the broadcast and something about the stadium, all those things gave me strong championship vibes. And maybe both of these teams will be back in the championship next season. Who knows? But it is, it's a nice goal. It's not a special goal, but it's a special moment for Luca Coliosho, who is very much in the USMNT's sights when it comes to the next dual national who could decide to play for the US. Eligible for a number of different countries, Italy being one of them. But the United States, as far as I know, is making a pretty strong push for the Coliosho. He starts on the wing in this game. He's been a regular starter for Burnley all year and gets that goal in the 75th minute, gets on the ball on the left side of the box in a load of space, right? Has tons of time takes a touch, cuts onto his right foot, and scores at the near post. It's a great finish and good composure from Kolyosho. And it's also him coming like 30 seconds off of missing a rebound. That could have been his first goal. The shot comes off and Kolyosho crashes, and he can't put it on frame. It hits the woodwork. But he stays composed. He's visibly frustrated, but he stays involved in the play, waits for the action to come to him, stays in a pocket of space, and scores. It's a nice moment from him, a player who I think is very, very talented and could be an yeah. impact player wherever he goes, both at the club level and at the national team level. Yeah, I really like the different dimension that, that he brings with a bit of pace and trickery, and I can't help but imagine how that would fit in for the US. So I like the prospect of, of him choosing the US. Good performance by Burnley. Some good uh, gallows humour in this match. There was a video of Sheffield United fans walking to Turf Moor before the game singing about how they are, how shall I word it, pooper than you, uh, talking about uh, Burnley. <laughs> and they were right. They were much pooper than Burnley in this game. Paul Heckingbottom, he will pay for this result with his job, who might have been fired even by the time that this comes out. That is the, the reporting. He knew it was over uh, after this match, where mm. he said he almost joined in with the fans singing the players aren't fit to wear the shirt, <laughs> which uh, was quite the, a, a statement from the, the manager. As I said, he, he knew it was done for him after this game. Yeah, that's not what you really want to be hearing at this point in the season. Uh, interesting that uh, Newcastle brought us XBPG expected back post goals. Now we've got XP expected poopiness from Burnley Sheffield United as well. <laughs> Lots of uh, metrics to yeah, come out this weekend. Yeah, wonderful stuff <laughs> indeed. Uh, by the way, Koleosho is, uh, he was born and raised in the US to a Nigerian father and an Italian Canadian mother. He's eligible for all the aforementioned countries there. So he's got some choices to make. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go around the rest of the consulate. We're going to look at the MLS Cup final. Woo, back shortly. 
This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Shall we turn our attention, Graham, to La Liga, where, where do we start? Barcelona with a 1-0 win over Atleti uh, at uh, at the, whatever their stadium's called now. J.Y.L. Felix the, with the, uh, yeah. At the place at the top of the hill, yeah. Where only 34,000 people turned up for this wow. game. The lowest attendance Barcelona have had all season. So safe to say this uh, this match, that La Liga is trying to brand as the Super Duelo which was a new one for me, um, it's maybe not capturing the imagination. And to be fair, after 90 minutes of this one, the, the game didn't really come to the boil in the way that I had hoped Barcelona were the stronger team over 90 minutes. And it was certainly an improvement on what we've seen from them recently. But I don't know. It didn't feel like they were... They, they still weren't at top speeds. And I don't think the lack of atmosphere helped because as i say there weren't many fans there so there was a certain flatness to the whole thing which was i great. think it's just weird this season watching them not at the camp new even as a spectator on tv as well something feels a bit off about the whole thing maybe that's just me um next weekend though girona visits uh, the aforementioned stadium i still don't know the name of so that'll be interesting girona with a 2-1 win over valencia this weekend to keep the pressure on at the top they're joint top on 38 points with real madrid who got a 2-0 win over granada brahim diaz and rodrigo with the goals in a pretty strong straightforward win Graham yeah this was a pretty comfortable match for Real Madrid who are building some serious momentum at the moment they've stepped it up since the classical win over Barcelona which was a bit of a sliding doors moment for those two teams Barcelona have gone one way Real Madrid have gone the other way and these are the sort of matches that Barcelona aren't having right now where they just get the job done without getting out of second gear everything feels a little bit laborious for for Barcelona right now even while even against Atleti which I said they were the better team over 90 minutes and I thought there were real signs of their midfield finding some rhythm I thought Gundogan ran the match in in that game but that unit of Gundogan, Pedri, De Jong they all looked very sharp but even with that unit and the improvement from Barcelona Iñaki Pena comes up with two big saves to, to give them the win, one from Memphis Depay and another one from Correa in stoppage time. So there are, there are still those moments for Barcelona, whereas Real Madrid are just cruising through games. And Carlo Ancelotti, he's done such a good job of absorbing the number of injuries Real Madrid have right now. With Barcelona, it feels like that is a big talking point. With Real Madrid, it kind of flies under the radar, the number of players that are missing for them right now. Kamavinga, Chouameni, Modric, they're all missing from their midfield unit. And then, of course, Vinicius Jr. is missing from their attack as well. But in midfield, Ancelotti, he's used Kroos and Valverde as this sort of double pivot. And then he's brought Brahim Diaz in to provide some off-ball running. And all that is working very well. It certainly worked for the the, the first Bar- uh, excuse me, Real Madrid goal in this game, where it's Brahim Diaz who gets released in behind with that off-ball running that I'm talking about. So, in general, Real Madrid right now, are, are they're motoring along very nicely. I think their build-up play is very good at the moment. There's just so, so much movement and players running in behind. And they take risks as well, which I think is a big difference between them and Barcelona. At their worst right now, Bar- you watch Barcelona and everything's just a little bit stagnant, a little bit safe, whereas Real Madrid are looking to take risks with their passes. And yeah, as I say, that's a big difference between the, the two teams right now. 
So Barcelona are four points behind Real Madrid and Girona at the moment. Atleti on 31 points, three points behind Barcelona in fourth place as well. Uh, in the Bundesliga, no Harry Kane goals this weekend. Uh, their game with Union was postponed for snow. Now, Joe, snow is this kind of frozen precipitation <laughs> that occasionally falls in some parts of the world. I don't know if you're familiar mm, with, with that one. No, no, never heard of it. Okay, okay. well, that's what happened there. So that game did not happen. What did happen, though, was Bayer Leverkusen uh, with a 1-1 draw against Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Even though Bayern didn't play, that's going to be tough to have dropped those points in the title race, Graham. Yeah, it says a lot about the the standard that's been set at the top of the Bundesliga. We spoke about this last week, that Leverkusen... So this is the first time since the draw against Bayern Munich that Leverkusen have, have dropped points this season. And it still kind of feels like Bayern Munich are breathing on their neck and they'll overtake them at some point. Um, Dortmund gave Leverkusen a lot of problems in this game defensively, especially for the goal in the opening five minutes where Jeremy Frimpong, he gets dragged out into into the middle, excuse me, by Rearson and then doesn't know whether to come back out to Bino Gittins and then that creates the space for Rearson to get into the box. And obviously, Jeremy Frimpong is so crucial to the way that Leverkusen attack down the right and he plays a, a key role in uh, a disallowed Florian Wurtz equaliser and he's a key part of the way that Leverkusen get out. But there is some speculation around Frimpong at the moment and Premier League teams being interested in him, which isn't surprising to me, but a lot of these teams apparently see him as a right back. And that's not where he's playing for Leverkusen this season. He's playing very much as a, a, a very wingy right wing back. And I'm not sure that he has the defensive instincts to play that position. So this game, we saw both the, the kind of similar to Alexander Arnold. We saw the good side and the bad side of, of Jeremy Frimpong. And I would say the same of Borussia Dortmund because they really gambled in a lot of moments in terms of getting bodies forward and, and trying to expose the space between the wing backs and the centre backs and, and Leverkusen's back three. And as I say, it worked for their goal. And it made the whole thing a pretty entertaining match match where both teams wanted to attack and there were lots of turnovers but then when Dortmund did turn over the ball the the commitment to their attack often meant that their defensive shape was pretty fragmented and when Leverkusen put on Patrick Schick to have him play up front alongside Boniface it was fragmented even more and you can see the confusion in the Boniface equaliser where Schick just sort of drifts into the middle and I think it's Mats Hummels who loses him and then clearly doesn't know that he's behind him and kind of has that panicked moment of trying to get back in to make the challenge fails and then the ball is squared across the, the goal. So an entertaining match um, but Leverkusen we saw some flaws in their setup here. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, they've won 14 games in a row prior to this one as well. So, uh, yeah, points are dropping at Leverkusen. Taylor Rockwell will not be happy uh, when news reaches him of that. Uh, Serie A, let's go there now. Napoli with a 3-0 home defeat at the hands of Inter. Uh, Kalinolu, uh, Barella and Turam with the goals in that one. Inter uh, went two points clear with that one, Graham. Yep, the Scudetto winners of last season versus the Scudetto favourites of this season. There was only clear uh, one clear winner in the end. The the Napoli renaissance under Walter Mazzari lasted two matches <laughs> um, <laughs> and it seems to now be over. But to be honest, I came away from this match more impressed by Inter than I was disappointed by Napoli because Inter right now, they are a serious team. I think that the signing of Marcus Turam has given, given them more dynamism in the attack. I think they still have the best all-round defender in uh, Bastoni, who actually doesn't play this game, but it's the midfield where Inter are pretty special. And in particular, moving Chalanoglu slightly deeper into a playmaking role has just given them more control. It's getting the best out of Nicolo Barella again, who scores in, in, in this game. And then you've got Denzel Dumfries and DeMarco providing um, thrust and width as fullbacks. And I honestly think Chalanoglu... And he has this opinion of himself as well. There was a pretty notable um, quote after the match where he said, basically, I'm as good as Kevin De Bruyne. I'm as good as anyone in the world. I would kind of I would kind of <laughs> agree uh-huh. that this season uh-huh. he's playing on that level, not just because De Bruyne is out injured at the moment and attending uh, Formula One matches, but he, is, he has been very good this season. It's, a, it's just a very well-balanced team at the moment. And Napoli, on the other hand, have lost their way. As I say, the Renaissance under Matt Zari lasted... Uh, two games and I don't think there's any chance they challenge for the title again this season Okay, well Inter two points clear as I mentioned uh, Juve with a 2-1 win over Monza on Friday big news coming out of San Siro Joe a 3-1 win for Milan over Rosinone Uh, Christian Pulisic with a lovely individual effort not only was it a lovely individual effort Joe but it was route one my favourite kind of goal blasted down the field from the goalkeeper and the takedown that Pulisic has over his shoulder Absolutely world-class. Big fan of that takedown as part of his uh, really good individual effort there. 
Yeah, so this is the best first touch that I saw in any games that I watched over the weekend. Not that there maybe wasn't a better one out there somewhere, but Pulisic bringing down this ball over the top from goalkeeper Mike Mignon, doing it in stride, right, in a way that the ball's coming over his shoulder and he can continue his run at the exact same speed. That is absurdly difficult, and even for a pro player and a very good one at that in, in Christian Pulisic, not a touch that you can pull off repeatedly. So this is a lovely moment from him, a great piece of skill, then drives forward, keeps his composure in the box, and has a nice little kind of a chip to get the ball over the goalkeeper to put Milan up, I believe, uh, to give them their second goal in this game, I should say. It's an awesome moment from Christian Pulisic. Ron, I want to turn it back to you quickly. Is Route 1 your favorite? I'm trying to think of my, like what my favorite type of goal is, as we've is established. I fun. just hate, I hate yeah. goals, is what, is what happens. Is, <laughs> is that your favorite? Graham, what's your favorite? Now, now I'm obsessed with knowing this for everyone. Uh, well, I'm not sure what Route a counterattacking goal is. Like, Route, route 2? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, a, a quick counterattacking goal. Like, the Spurs goal against Man City is my favorite kind okay. of goal. But yeah, Ryan's a Wimbledon fan. Of course he likes Route 1. Yeah, right. so Wimbledon, Joe, very much based the game on Route 1, hoofing it down the middle, getting it to the big man, bypassing the midfield. So that's uh, that's why I say that. But All I the mean, stuff that Joe loves. Yeah, all my all my most favoriteest things. My favoriteest things ever. I can't believe I'm the only one. Now we got to ask Taylor when when he gets back eventually. Like, what, what his favorite kind of goal is, because I'm kind of shocked that I'm the only one who probably would go... I guess more of the Arsenal second goal against Wolves style where it's a lot of really nice. Main City had one of these goals as well against Tottenham where they kind of just parse their way through the block. That, that's got to be my favorite. But, I mean, this goal from Pulisic is awesome. So, Ryan, maybe that is a point in your favor. Yeah. I think the actual, my favorite archetyped kind of actual goal though, Joe, is the volley from outside the box that hits the woodwork of some kind. The oh. Hannes Rodriguez at the World Cup. I think yeah. that is the oh, best yeah. kind of goal you can score. Paul scores v uh, Aston Villa. That, that kind mm. of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good cool. goal. I do like an intricate passing goal, like the the Jack Wilshire goal oh, that he scored yes. for Arsenal a few years ago. Yeah, is so good. But Joe, as much as I admire those goals, and I go, oh yeah, the technical ability, the intelligence, and the the touches. I also the back and the, subconsciously I'm going smart ass. Like that's <laughs> my reaction to those kind of goals. So. Give me a route one or a counter-attacking. Well, I think also a, a goal whacked in from distance these days is better because you know that on Monday morning, all the data nerds at every club's going, you shouldn't have hit Stop it from it. there. You shouldn't have hit Stop it there. And they're doing it anyway. Right? Right? So that makes it even more Graham, important. Graham, that is opinion. the most revealing insight into your personality that we've gotten on this show in a long, in a long time. <laughs> wow. All right. Wow. So good. <laughs> MLS Conference Finals, Joe. Uh, our MLS Cup is set, of course. LFC taking on Columbus uh, in Columbus next weekend. LFC one game away from repeating as campeones. What do we make of the Conference Finals? So I'll start in the East. Cincinnati had a big lead in this game. They're up by two goals. Columbus stormed back and they grabbed three from the 75th minute into the end of extra time. They got three goals in that period to win this 3-2 in Cincinnati in a rivalry game. This game was absurd. Both of these games were good. This game was incredible. One of, if not the best, MLS game of the year so far in league player in the playoffs. Cincinnati start off fairly well. They grab a couple of chances. They go and they get one more goal before halftime after you know Columbus had sort of wrestled the momentum back away from them and felt like they were close to getting back in this game. Lucho Acosta then says nope and scores in first half stoppage time. And a lot of folks at that point felt like the game was going to be over because Cincinnati win the Shield. They're the top seed in the postseason, East or West. They are a very, very good team. The reality with Columbus is that games are never out of reach for them, like literally never out of reach for them. They maybe weren't quite on their A game to start this match, but after going down, they were the better team. They created more chances. They had more joy in the attack. It really felt like they were going to get back into this game, maybe not to win it, but they were going to have their chances, and they didn't end up having those chances. A couple of good subs from Wilford Nance, bringing Julian Gressel and Christian Ramirez on the field. Those two players were difference makers to the point where, at least with Gressel, I would, if, I, if you're Nance, you got to really think hard about getting him back in the lineup after you chose to bench him in the first place in the postseason. That is a massive question going into Saturday's game against LAFC. But this game was bonkers. Cincinnati not fully healthy, not fully fit in this game. Not fully mentally there either, given the whole Matt Miazga situation. He was out. Novoto didn't start this match. There were lots of issues on both sides. An imperfect game, but kind of like I talked about earlier with City Tottenham, sometimes those games are the best games. 
Yeah, I had a great time watching this this match. I watched this one uh, live. Very glad that I didn't go to bed at 2-0 to, uh, to, to Cincy because that had crossed my mind. It was about half one in the morning here. I'm, I'm just really pleased that the team that I think has been the most entertaining in MLS this mm. season, I don't know, maybe Joe agrees Agreed. with me on yeah, that. I'm talking about the Columbus crew. And uh, the, the coaching that, that Wilfred, Wilfred Nancy has obviously done at that club, his first season, obviously, after moving from Montreal, I'm just very pleased that the most entertaining team in MLS has made MLS Cup because that doesn't that doesn't always happen. And so my hope is that uh, Saturday's game is going to be another banger. Uh, maybe maybe the conference final has set a, t- a too unrealistic a, a standard, but hopefully it's somewhere on that scale. Yeah, I think it's a four Eastern kickoff for you, Graham. So um, won't be uh, a one or two AM finish for you this next week. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch the LAFC Houston Dynamo game, so Joe, tell me how that one went. Yeah, I will. This this is the one that that if you had to skip one, you would skip this one. That being said, it was still a very very strong game. Houston come out and try to control the game in LA against a very good team, a team with more talent. They took a big risk, Ben Olsen and the Houston Dynamo, and they came up well short, to be honest. They were the second team in this game by a pretty significant distance. Ryan Hollingshead gets a goal off of a set piece. LAFC have been excellent on set pieces this year. The Dynamo haven't been half bad either, but they get a goal, Ryan Hollingshead, after Chiellini gets a shot in the box. Sorry, Ryan, for saying the name that should not be named. That's my bad. Hollingshead gets that goal to put LAFC up before halftime, and then it's an own goal from Franco Escobar in the second half that puts LAFC up 2-0 and does put this game out of reach for the Dynamo, who play good soccer, right? They played some nice soccer in this game, but Ryan Hollingshead came out and said it after the game. Like, they did nothing with the ball. They did nothing meaningful with the ball, and that really was true for the Dynamo. They had a ton of possession. They ended the match with 70% possession on the road in the Western Conference Final against the team that won MLS Cup last year. That is absurd. It fits within the Dynamo's game model, but it is absurd nonetheless. And it did not work at all for Ben Olsen. The decision backfired. They didn't create chances. LAFC had real joy in transition. The Dynamo weren't super sharp. Ben Olsen kind of tried to blame it on the field after the game, which I thought was a, a pretty weak way to go. Even Great though, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, there were some absurd comments coming out of this game. But LAFC, the better team, they deserve to go to Columbus and try to go back to back on Saturday. I guess we know now that uh, Ben Olsen didn't get a ticket for the the Eros tour. He was still bitter. The many that missed out on that. So yeah, he's still bitter about that. Join the club. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, any any other business section? Uh, final with a 2-1 defeat at home to PSV in the Netherlands. That's a top two in the Netherlands facing off their exciting yeah, we, game. We, we should mention, we talked about PSV in their perfect season like two weeks ago, and we kind of binned that idea off because they had difficult games upcoming against FC20, who they beat, and then went away to Feyenoord and also beat them. They're 14 for 14 this season. There's a long way to go, but our argument about them has kind of been torn down, and I can't wait to see how long they can keep this going. Like, 14 wins out of 14 games is pretty incredible. Yeah, just just a 10 points clear at the moment in the Eredivisie in uh, the start of December. Not too bad for them. Uh, PSG had a 2-0 win over Le Havre, uh, their seventh straight league win. Donnarumma, I don't know if you've seen, listener, the yeah. uh, footage of him getting his red card. A slight moment of madness. A missed time clearance is how we'll generously uh, attribute yeah. that one for, uh, for A Schumacher of a tackle, I think they call that one. Not the best, yes. Uh, Graham, news from the Brazilian title race, please. Yes, I wrote about the Brazilian title race for the newsletter last week because with two rounds of fixtures left, there were four points between six teams who could all win the title. So at that point, it looked like it was going right down to the wire. Over over the weekend, though, it all came to a head and now Palmeiras have all but retained their title. They're three points ahead with a large goal difference advantage. The last matches are on Wednesday and Palmeiras, they have to lose to Cruzeiro and there has to be an eight-goal swing for them not to win the title. So they've, they've basically got it done over the weekend. Spare a thought for Botafogo, who had a 13-point lead at the halfway stage of the season. So they had a they had a PSV of an advantage in this league and then barely won another match. So uh, poor Diego Costa, who plays for them, he will need to take his anger out on some poor defender. Oh boy. Uh, by the way, listeners, do subscribe to Graham's newsletter, The Soccer Dispatch. Uh, it's very good indeed. I learn a lot from that every week. Also, while you subscribe to stuff, Couch Weekly, the uh, Serie A USA um, newsletter. I'm hearing good things about the guy who writes that. One <laughs> last thing to talk about. Euro 2024 had its draw over the weekend, Graham. I'm seeing a lot of Scotland fans delighted with the draw, yeah. getting the host Germany in the opening game. Is that a reason to be delighted? 
I was absolutely delighted with getting Germany. I kid you not, Taylor and I did a Patreon episode a couple of weeks ago and I said, not only did I want Germany, I wanted the opening match. I'm sure I said that in that episode. So when it came out the hat and I was watching the draw in the kitchen, I ran around the house like like a little kid and embarrassed myself in front of my wife and my daughter. Um, Not least because I have a ticket for that match. So that'll genuinely be the match of my lifetime in terms of a game that I've been to. I've never been to a bigger game than that in, in my life. The other two teams that we drew, Hungary and Switzerland, tough games. I'm, I'm not going to k- yeah. kid myself there. We could have got easier draws from those pots, but neither of them kind of terrify me. I think they'll be competitive. So all in all, yes, I am I am pleased with, uh, with, with the draw. I understand what you're saying, Ryan. In normal circumstances, Germany as a host nation in a major <laughs> tournament is one that you want to avoid. But everyone in pot one looked really, really strong. And given what we've seen from all those teams in 2023, they looked the most vulnerable. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Interesting. Interesting take. We shall see how that one pans out next summer, of course. Uh, group B looks good. The uh, Mediterranean group of death with Spain and Italy, Croatia and Albania all featuring. That should be very interesting. Poor indeed. Albania. Yeah. <laughs> I feel sorry for Albania in that one. Maybe they'll be the, the Costa Rica of this tournament. Remember when um, Costa Rica were in a group with England, Italy, Uruguay, I want to say, 2014 World Cup. Mm-hmm. And Costa Rica made it out of that group and made a run. So maybe that'll be Albania. No, I don't remember how that group finished, actually. Thank you for not bringing it up. <laughs> um, and Group C for England, of course, having Denmark, Serbia and Slovenia. I'm okay with that, Graham, frankly. Yeah, I think England have come out of this draw pretty well. Although yeah. Alexander Mitrovic, um, I don't know. He's he's an international football specialist. He just seems like the sort of player who would score twice against England and, and knock them out of a tournament. I don't know. But yeah, England have come out pretty well from this group, and particularly if you compare their draw to France, who I think those are the two favourites, in my mm. mind anyway, France and England for this tournament. They have got the Netherlands and Austria, who under Ralph Rannick are going very, very strong at the moment, beat Germany recently and then the fourth team i believe is one of the playoff winners so that that might be a a, a minnow but yeah austria netherlands is, is, a, is a tricky draw yeah that's a good group that fourth team i believe will be either wales finland poland or estonia mm. yeah so that could be poland and i know poland aren't in great form at the moment but they've got a certain striker who scores lots of goals so yeah that could be a a, a difficult one for france you're talking about carol Sudersky of charlotte fc of course yeah yeah else? good Excellent. There's no deals. You guys really brought me back in there with this Swiderski reference. I was I was floating out into the ether <laughs> waiting for something to happen, and the Swiderski comment drew me back in, Ryan. That's well played. There it is, Joe. But you're excited about the Euros, right, Joe? Yeah. Soccer. Love soccer. Well, the Cop- great. I think the Copa America kicks off the second week of the Euros. So I yeah, think I'll, Joe will be I will be watching the, the Copa America zone out. One thousand percent. Okay, that is correct. All right, guys. Well, we have reviewed the weekend. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your part in doing so. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Uh, Graham Ruthen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you the mostest. We appreciate you and your patronage. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.